allow me to open in prayer and we'll look at this together. Will you allow me that? (laughs) Father, we do thank you for your loving kindness, your mercy shown to us each and every day. We thank you for the living scriptures, Lord, that we've been granted the grace um, to believe them and to see them as your very word. Help me, help us in this time to understand uh, the glorious truths before us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 16, verses 1 and 2. It's what I'm going to read, and then we'll look at the, the majority of it this morning. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Uh, One of the hymns sung uh, by the Union Army during the Civil War is uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. The first first stanza reads as follows. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory. Hallelujah. Um, Few Americans um, today understand the theological significance um, of that hymn or of those lyrics. Uh, But they're in fact inspired by Revelation 14. Describing the coming of the Son of Man in judgment. Descending on the clouds, unleashing his sickle as he sends forth his angels um, to harvest the wicked. To cast them like sour grapes into the wine press where they're crushed. Chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. And then Revelation 15, as I said last week, serves as a kind of literary bridge between the return of Jesus Christ at the end um, of time at at the great harvest and the bowls of judgment are associated, of course, with that harvest. As John says in Revelation 15.1, with them, the bowl judgments, God's wrath is completed. And then finally, of course, we also looked at last week, the saints' victory over the beast and their victory song in chapter 15, verses 2 through 4. And uh, so, so what we're seeing before us is, is the end of God's wrath being poured out. Revelation 16, then, is, is a picture of the ultimate wrath of God. I mean, it's very vivid, it's decisive, it's dramatic, and it's final. It's frightening imagery, actually, of what happens when when God's patience runs out, to use anthropomorphic terms. This is a picture of what my sin deserves. This is a picture of what you deserve as his judgment, the judgment of God, is meted out by Jesus, the Son of God. As you know, I think you know, we live in a day um, when many people, though they respect Jesus as a great teacher, they respect him as a, you know, a martyr or a religious leader, 
or even perhaps a savior with so little conviction that he would tolerate gross perversity and blasphemy in the name of love. That's the Jesus you hear about today. But that's a universalist view, and that universalist view, unfortunately, has perverted the perspective of some who profess Jesus Christ as Lord, who say that God's judgment and the sin of unbelieving sinners ought not to be mentioned, let alone, God forbid, preached from a pulpit. But God's word clearly declares that we dare not ignore the reality of his wrath. But instead, as Psalm 2 verse 12 says, that we must kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This son is the Messiah, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is the instrument and the implementer of justice, who sets his anger against all those who remain impenitent, unrepentant. Jesus said in John 5, the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Okay, He came once as Savior, and He will come again as judge. And He will judge the living and the dead, those who are alive when He comes and those who have passed long ago. So the humble and meek Jesus that, that most people will embrace is also the holy and wrathful Jesus whom most people would rather forget. And here in the book of Revelation, we're shown the imagery of Christ's judgment on an unbelieving, blasphemous world. We're shown that judgment numerous times from numerous angles, configured for us here by way of recapitulation. That's the book of Revelation. That's how you're to read it. That's how it's to be interpreted. So in it, we see a pattern of deliverance, judgment, and persecution. Persecution, judgment, and deliverance over and over again. When we taught this three, I guess it was four years ago. Uh, Elizabeth reminded me the other day. Uh, four years ago, people were saying it sounds like the same thing over and over again. That's right. That's exactly what it is. Persecution, judgment, deliverance, deliverance, judgment, persecution. So, so far, Revelation has shown through these apocalyptic visions, seven seals of judgment, four horses, horsemen of judgment, seven trumpets of judgments, earthquakes, flashes of lightning, rumblings, three woes, and numerous plagues. And here, the pattern is repeated once more by way of seven bowls of, with growing intensity. So with each scene, you see an increase of intensified justice. With language here reminiscent of the Egyptian plagues that we'll see in a few weeks um, in the book of Exodus. We'll actually see shadows of them today in the text. 
So it, it describes pictures of judgment that, that are more graphic and terrifying um, than we've seen uh, thus far. And this isn't even the end of Revelation. This is just the last part of with growing parallelism. That's what we see, increased parallelism. So throughout the book of Revelation, John uses these great word pictures uh, in order to assist our understanding. And it, it, this, is the, this is the magnitude of something that is far beyond our grasp. That's why it's so vivid. That's why it's so, so broad. It's, it's grabbing our attention. It's imagery that, that, that provides pictures of increased intensity of the judgments of the wrath of God that the world is even under at this moment to some degree with an awful depiction of that which is to come. So uh, these, beloved, are, are the visions of what God thinks of sin, okay, and don't miss this, and sinners. You know, you often hear, or, or even perhaps have used the cliche, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. He hates the sin but loves the sinner, as though he separates the two. But remember, sin only manifests itself through sinners. Amen? And God judges sinners for their sin. That's what we see here. That's the picture of Revelation 16. So let's not loosely use the phrase, God, God hates the sin and loves the sinner. He judges sinners for their sin. And the judgments we see being portrayed here do not separate the two. The only separation going on is the separation of his wrath from those and only those who bear the seal of the living God. That's the only separation that there is in the revelation. So within this vision in 16, we, we see this unlimited range of God's sovereignty. The absolute, sovereign, almighty God that is, what we're seeing is that all of creation is, creation is being affected. This, that's the scene. Everything he formed in Genesis 1 is obliterated in Revelation 16. That which he raised up into existence in Genesis 1 is raised down, raised with a Z, down and out of existence in Revelation 16. The creation of Genesis 1 is decreated in Genesis, uh, Revelation 16. Now, from Revelation 6, verse 1 to 8, verse 1, we looked at the sealed judgments, okay? The, the, the first cycle of judgments that cover the entire period uh, between Christ's first and second advent, concluding with the sixth seal, which was the return of the Lord. In Revelation 8 through 11, we looked at the second cycle of judgments. Those are the trumpet judgments that also run their course between the first and second advents of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and those visions are more intense, in intensified visions in the trumpet judgment. Culminating, of course, with the return of the Lord with the seventh trumpet, when the city of man... Right? Babylon the Great is destroyed just as Jericho, which blocked Israel's entrance to the promised land, was destroyed 
at the what trumpet blast? Seventh trumpet blast. And the judgment described here in Revelation 16 is worldwide. The trumpets, it wasn't worldwide. It was limited. And we're going to look at some of that again. Uh, we're going to go back to uh, Revelation 9 in a bit. So there's a great comparison here with the bold judgments to the, to the trumpet judgments. For instance, a little parallelism here. The first trumpet affected the earth, whereas the first bowl also affects the earth. In Revelation 8, the second trumpet, we read that one-third of the sea had been turned to blood. In the second bowl, God strikes dead every living creature in the sea. Nothing survives. Okay? Now, we're, we're thinking of the sea. Don't forget that, that in Revelation 21.1, in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no more what? No more sea, which is the place of what? Turbulence. It's the place of trouble. It's a picture of turmoil that is the symbolic realm of the dragon who rises up out of the sea, chapter 13, verse 1. There's no more turbulence. There's no more trouble in the new heaven, in the earth, new earth. So I, I think it has to do with that more than, you know, a guy I used to know said, man, I guess we won't be able to go sailing in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, I, I think it's not literal. <laughs> in the third trumpet judgment, God makes one-third of the earth, earth's fresh water bitter, bringing sickness or death upon those who drink it. The third bowl infects the waters of all the earth. This, again, is an exodus-like judgment of the waters and the plagues of Egypt. It's symbolic of the fact that God now judges to the extent of the very sources of life themselves. Everything is crumbling here. The fourth trumpet, we saw that the sun, the moon, and the stars were affected, uh, producing partial darkness. In the fourth bowl, the sun scorches the unrepentant. In the fifth trumpet, the pit of the abyss is opened up upon command. In the fifth bowl, the throne of the beast we see affected, and both result in darkness. Remember the locust plague of the pit? We're going to look at that. And the throne of the beast produced darkness just like in Exodus 10, verse 22. Now, the fifth trumpet releases demonic spirits. The fifth bull releases suffering on all those who follow the beast. The system. Sixth trumpet affects the Euphrates. Sixth bull affects the Euphrates. We're not going to look at this that this week. We'll look at it next time. And that corresponds to the frog plague in Exodus 8. The sixth trumpet, we see the death of, of one-third of humanity by war. The sixth bowl, warfare on all the kings of the earth. The seventh trumpet, we see lightning and hail. The seventh bowl, lightning and hail, which corresponds to Exodus 9, verses 23 to 24. You get all that? Okay, good, good. Okay, so again, this is progressive parallelism, re recapitulation that grows with intensity. 
That's why you see so much of the same thing. And it's simply reminding us that time is short. Verse 1, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Okay, first question. Who is the voice coming out of the temple? Okay, let's jump back to chapter 15, verse 7. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Okay, so they've been sent out. So the only likely source here of this commission is none other than God himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we look at this, the, these are not haphazard acts of destruction. Th these are not random acts of, of the natural law at work, as far as creation goes. This is Almighty God. Almighty God who, who carries out these final seven acts of judgments. Notice, it says, with a loud voice. An authoritative, loud voice, which is to say, the demeanor of the Lord's tone here, it's not suggestive, as though, you know, I think it's time. It's not inquisitive. What do you think? Should I pour out these bowls of judgment upon the earth? No. And it's not reserved, as though he wished he didn't have to do it. This voice is commanding, this voice is overpowering, and this is the Lord angry as he pours out his wrath. He's not wringing his hands going, I wish I didn't have to do it. No, it's time. A loud voice. So just as the pouring out of the bowl, we think of them pouring out these bowls, and the mark of the beast are figurative, so also the bull's effect of producing painful, harmful sores, they should also be taken metaphorically. Now, the bull's effect is, of course, based upon the literal Egyptian plague of boils in Exodus. But that plague later served Israel by way of Moses, their mediator, as a warning to Israel for disobedience and unbelief. Okay? Listen to Revelation, or Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, 27. The Lord will strike you, people of God, with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch, of which you cannot be healed, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness. And here it is, confusion of mind. It is said that the greatest suffering from boils like this is psychological more than it is physical. And that's a key component as we're going to look back at Revelation 9 and 13 in a bit. Okay, now, in verse 2 here in Revelation, we read about the mark of the beast. Okay, friends. The mark of the beast is not a literal mark. It's not a computer chip. 
Okay, it's, it's not a credit card. It's not a barcode. This is figurative, like the rest of the book. Back in chapter 13, okay, we read of those marked on the right hand or the what? Forehead. Okay, so let's start there, and let's think through this biblically. Okay? If we go back to Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? Monotheism. A monotheistic people. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Amen? Okay. Which means, apply your love for God and apply your love for his word to your thinking and to your work. Your head, your heart, your hands, your work, your life. Now, Israel at the time of Christ, because it wasn't on their heart, they take this and they make it literal, so they make these boxes called phylacteries, and they put this scripture in the box and tied it to their head and in their, in their wrist. Jews still do this today. Remember, we take this trip to Israel, who, you who are with us. Remember, the Jews would get up every what, on the hour or whatever to go pray, and they'd pull off their phylacteries putting on a big show. Remember that? That's what they do. That's what they did. And Jesus rebukes them. You broaden your phylacteries to be seen by men. And that's what all false religion is. It's outward. So here, for all these unbelieving Christ rejectors, their thinking, their working, is in honor of the beast. So this mark symbolizes the world's system's control of their minds and consequently, their actions. Those who have the mark of the beast, all unbelievers, all unbelievers have the mark of the beast. They will realize on this day that their master, the one to whom they show allegiance, World powers, false ideologies, philosophies, religion, that their master is powerless to protect them from the plagues sent by the one and only God. There's only two categories of people in this world, friends. There's only two categories of people that will be in this building today. Those who have the mark of the beast and those who are sealed by the living God on their foreheads which is symbolic. You're sealed on your forehead. Did you know that? Did you ever see that in the mirror? <laughs> so the mark of the beast not only fails to protect those who serve the dragon by way of their ideologies, philosophies, made-up religion, but actually identifies them as objects of God's wrath. It's all idolatry, and that's the, that's the point. It's all idolatry. And all those bearing the number of man, 666, will be judged by the wrath of God, 777. 666 falls short of 777. It's an imperfect number. One writer says this. He says, the mark of their committed idolatry is answered by the mark of divine retribution. So it's not a chip. When you go to the vet, 
when they want to put a chip in your dog, you don't have to freak out. <laughs> right? We had a dog with a chip. We adopted this dog and had a chip, you know, and I, I can't believe, oh, you know, that's the mark of the beast. No, it's not. No, it's not. Now, what we're seeing is final judgment on those who bear the mark of the beast. Back in that chapter 9, okay, in chapter 9, we saw partial judgment unleashed on those not marked by the seal of God on their foreheads. Okay, so I want to back up. I want to go back to chapter 9. Okay? Back in chapter 9, these demons, and they come in the form, the vision here is a locust plague, okay? With stings in their tails. And they're released from this shaft, this bottom, bottomless pit, where they're held, and these demons are ordered, verse 4, we're told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only on those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Notice, verse 5, they were allowed, allowed, to torment them for five months. That's the lifespan of a locust, by the way but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. I've heard guys teach this, that imagine trying to drown yourself and suck it in water and you can't die. That's not what he's talking about. So here's a demonic force told or commanded not to harm certain parts of the earth. They were not to permitted to, to, to devour the world's vegetation. That, perhaps that's literal, trees, fields, and such. Or perhaps it's figurative, such as the fruit of the world, that is the economic or, or educational or social systems. Okay? What he is told to harm are people not sealed with the seal on their forehead. Otherwise known as those married to the world system. Otherwise known as those who belong to Babylon, i.e. those who refuse Christ. And it's God here, if you notice, who prescribes the limitations of the torment of these demons. Who's in control? You know, these people who think that, you know, Satan just runs loose and wild doing whatever he wants are so wrong. In every circumstance, Satan and his minions serve God and his greater purposes. They do not roam freely. They do not roam willfully as they please. They themselves are instruments of God's wrath, utilized as he wills. Very important that we know this. Evil is not a threat to God. Evil Okay, get this. Evil is the servant of God. Verse 5, chapter 9. They were allowed, allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion. Okay, here again is a picture, and behind each picture is a reality. Okay, so why five months? First, as I said earlier, the life cycle of a, of a locust is five months. 
it corresponds to the dry season, you know, spring through late summer when the danger of invasion is most probable. And it's interesting, we all know that the number of seven is perfection or completeness, and five being less than seven shows the limitation of the plague. Not being permitted to run its course in the lives of these individuals, okay? Think about this. Many times when the agony of conscience runs its course, worked out properly in the life of an individual, they recognize their sin and they turn to Christ. What we see here is a torment of conscience that's not permitted to run its course, but are decisively limited by God. So their agony, their anxiety, and here it is, their anger towards God is not allowed to run its course. Now, it's interesting to hear Interviews with the rich and famous who say, with all that I have attained, with everything that I've accomplished, I have not found peace or contentment. When a guy has three Super Bowl rings, they go, which one's your favorite? He goes, the next. The next one. So their anguish is the consequence of a torn conscience that suppresses the truth of God in their what? In their unrighteousness. So the, the locust purpose is not to kill, but to sting like a scorpion. Which, by the way, rarely brings about death. But it hurts. It is painful. So in chapter 9, verse 6, And in those days, between the first and second coming of Christ, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee for them. Okay, this is another uh, picture of a profound reality, beloved. They want to escape the torment of a screaming conscience that wants nothing to do with God. So if you commit suicide, a suicide attempting to escape this kind of mental agony, the problem is that if you end it there, it doesn't end. It only is worse when you end it like that. It leads to a second death of eternal torment. That's the picture. So in chapter 9, it's a temporal and limited span. In chapter 16, it's worldwide. Those sealed by God faith face the wrath of the beast, right? Those marked by the beast face the wrath of God. So, back to 16. The first sign judgment. Now, it calls them plagues, right? Like when we get to Exodus, we're going to read these plagues, but really they're signs. They're signs of judgment in the Exodus, signs of God's judgment. Uh, in the first plague in Egypt, it caused great suffering. Again, that caused more psychological suffering than physical. You remember the torment of Job? You remember his suffering? 
if you read the account, you see a lot more psychological suffering than you do physical suffering. The psychological suffering was the product of the physical thing he was going through. But he had more trouble in his head, like any one of us would, than sitting in ashes as he was, scraping his sores. Now, the second plague, we read about uh, coagulated blood, clotted blood, which produces a, a stench, admits a foul stench. Every living thing died. Again, there's the reversal of Genesis 1. Under the trumpet judgments, one-third of the sea was affected. So maritime activity was affected, producing you know, severe economic judgment. Again, it's temporal. Here, everything dies. Everything is touched. So if we look at an economic system here, we see it totally destroyed. And I think we see a little something more of that. In chapter 18, in verses uh, 15 to 17, the merchants of the wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Aloud, weeping and mourning, shaking your fist at God as you're under his judgment. Those marked by the beast. So the, fist, the system has failed. and is eroding under the judgment of God. The third plague, the fresh waters, all fresh water resources. Um, and the third plague, uh, or the third trumpet, were uh, made bitter. Here they're turned to blood, just like in Exodus. Notice in verse 5, you are just and holy who brought these judgments. Why? For they shed the blood of the saints. Did you notice that? They heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. And now you've given them blood to drink. That's heavy. You know, elsewhere we read, you know, he who was and is and is to what? Come. There is no to come here because he's come. <laughs> you who is and who was here, he has come. So now it's blood for blood, isn't it? Exactly what they deserve. And the altar speaks. Now we heard <coughs> voices from the altar back in chapter 6, right? Verses 9 and following. Lord, how long? They cry out from underneath the altar. You open the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. Souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Here's the answer. <laughs> In this picture, we see the answer. He's crushing them in the wine press without apology. He is just and he is true. So all of this process of decreation, destruction of the old, is to, pre is to prepare for the new heaven and new earth. That's why when you die and you go to heaven, that's, that's not your last resting place. The earth is. 
the new earth, the new heaven, the new earth, glorified body at the resurrection when Christ does come back. If you're already with him, your body will be raised. If you're here, when he comes back, you'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye to dwell in a new, in a new heaven and new earth. So grandma, who's up in heaven, that's not her final resting place. It's to serve with the king right here in a recreation. But he's going to have to decreate it first. Fourth plague, the, the, scor- the sun scorches uh, unbelieving, idolatrous men who did not what? Repent. Now we recall the words, uh, Revelation 7, verse 16, that earlier vision. There's uh, the saints in heaven. It says there, never again will they hunger. Remember now, this is written to a church who's under heavy persecution. Starvation, hunger, persecution, sword, bloodshed. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. The point? God's people are protected from his wrath. Those sealed by God. In contrast to those who serve the dragon, who refuse to give glory to God, who therefore refuse to repent. Instead, notice, they curse God despite the intensity of the judgment. That's the picture. The temporal judgments we read back in chapter 9, did they repent? No, they did not repent. This reminds us, friends, just how deep the effects of sin are upon the human heart. Do you see, do we not see more greatly how great grace is? that causes you to believe that your faith is a gift or you would be in this category with the mark of the beast. Amazing grace. So the beast and the false system as depicted here have so systematically deceived the world's inhabitants that they curse their creator while judgment's being poured out. And that shows us the wickedness of man, but by the grace of God. So in the fifth plague, notice there that the the beast's kingdom is plunged into darkness. And that points us back to the ninth Egyptian plague. So dark it could be felt. You ever been in a cave? I remember we went to the cave of the mounds when I was a kid in the state of Wisconsin. And, you know, they do this thing. You stand there and they turn the light off. That's dark, dark. So dark as it's defined that you can feel it. And that's unsettling. After a while, you get a little nervous when it's that dark, where you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. So when we talk about darkness in the Bible, um, when we read here in in Revelation, it's, it's an Old Testament symbol that speaks of the fall of political rulers. You read it all throughout the Old Testament. The sun goes dark like sackcloth. The moon turns to blood. Those are all Old Testament symbols of the fall of political powers. Which produces what in people? Darkness and despair. When you, when you trust the man, when you trust the system, you put all your trust in the political system... 
when it falls, you're troubled. You don't know what to do because your leaders don't know what to do. And it says they gnaw their tongues, gnawing their tongues. That's a picture of nervously biting your nails, biting your fingernails, gnawing your tongue. What are we to do? What are we to do? Turmoil. And the result, they curse the God of heaven. Now, in the Exodus story, we, we see a, a direct attack upon Pharaoh, who, who believed he was the incarnation of the sun god, Ray. And the fifth bowl identifies for us God's total sovereignty over Satan and his forces. And when the darkness struck Pharaoh and his people, the only people who had light was Israel who dwelt in Goshen, separated from Egypt by the protective hand of God. And that's the picture for us. Those of us sealed on the forehead, sealed with the seal of God. So here, here again, the picture. We're not going to get into the uh, Armageddon this time. We'll do Armageddon next because there's all kinds of thoughts of Armageddon today being taught. Hollywood, and then the church adopts Hollywood's view, and then they, that's their eschatology. So we'll look at Armageddon, what it is what it isn't um, next time. So here we see that uh, what's being depicted here is all according to God's sovereign plan. This judgment is part of his plan. In other words, God will one day settle the score. Amen? So uh, the God I see here, the God I see here, the Lord Jesus Christ I see here in, in Revelation 16 isn't the sentimental God of 21st century evangelicalism who only talk about God's love, right? Is that the God we see here? No. People today turn the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ into this sappy, sentimental, cosmic Santa Claus. He's not. We look at this and we rejoice we're saved. We look at this and we rejoice that he's put his seal upon us. We rejoice in this that we don't carry the mark of the beast. Because the Jesus that, that they portray today and want to talk about today is a man-made idol of contemporary, of the contemporary evangelical mind. He's nothing but an idol. Any time you say that God's judgment ought not to be discussed with, with sinners, you're denying the very characteristics of this God. You're denying these characteristics that he has put in a book. It's his book. Amen? So the tone of frustration is in the fools that I've heard say these words in the past. Because there's a lot of them out there. Yes, we want to talk about the love of God because we're recipients of that love, amen? We're recipients of that grace. Of course we want to talk about the love of God. But that's only to be compared to his wrath. 
And that's the cross. That's the cross. Where love and wrath meet. Where judgment and mercy meet. Okay, so, to leave on a positive note. In the midst of this scene, there are words of comfort. John hears these words expressed by way of a beatitude. If you jump down to verse 15. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. This is like those wise virgins virgins of uh, Matthew 25. They have their lamps burning for whenever the bridegroom appears. Being ready for the coming of Christ, whether it's in death or whether it's at his second coming, is the right and wise way to live. So that's the encouragement for, for everyone who's sealed by God as God's people. Because as God's people, we are an island of believers surrounded by a sea of unbelief. We're looked at as the fools. But we've been granted the grace and the mercy of God to believe and to see this for what it is. Amen? Lord, we do thank you for all of Scripture. Your mercy, your grace, your judgment, and your wrath. And we thank you that we're sealed by you so that we can't bear the mark of the beast. Help us to stay clothed and ready, and always ready, like the wise virgins whose lamps are burning, for your glory, for the good of your people, in Jesus' name, amen.